Welcome to Dreamers and Unicorns, brought to you by People Strong. Hey Ginny, who do we have today? Well, Abhijit, today your guest is Ravi Venkateshan, former chairman of Microsoft India and currently UNICEF's special representative for young people and innovation. You can talk to him about the workspaces of the future. Okay, great. Let us start the show. As people navigate their careers in a constantly changing world of technology, what makes someone employable and what makes someone successful? In this episode, I'm talking to Ravi Venkateshan about how to adapt your career to the evolving tech trends. Hey, Ravi, welcome to the show. Um, I wanted to start by saying that, uh, you know, when you look at your career and you want to tell us a little bit about how it has moved, what would be some of those salient blocks? I know you started with manufacturing. Yeah. Cummins, yeah. And then Microsoft. So how did it move? So, you know, I'm reminded of what Steve Jobs said. He said you can only connect the dots looking backwards. So, you know, this is not, the, my career is a bit unusual because of all the twists and turns, and it's certainly not one that I planned. But when I look back, it seems that every seven years I have, um, you know, made a change to do something profoundly different. So I spent my first 16 years after uh, after engineering uh, with a company called Cummins that made makes diesel engines. And I came back to India in nine, late 1996 to set up the Indian um, operations of Cummins. And I was there till about 2003, which is when I uh, switched, uh, made a pretty big shift to Microsoft. And those days, Microsoft was pretty tiny in India. And you were also part of that journey for That's a while. Right. So we had a wild ride for eight years, uh, building Microsoft to much of what it is today. And then 2011, I decided that uh, I was done being an employee. So um, that's when I decided um, to essentially become an adventurer. I said, um, I don't know what the future holds, but I'm going to try my hand at different things and see how it goes. So 2011 to uh, about 18, I ended up doing three things. I became an author and um, fairly regular writer. Um, the second thing, I started um, joining some boards and I ended up chairing two of them, Bank of Baroda, and by a, a little bit of an accident, became co-chair of Infosys and um, uh, also joined the board of Volvo and some other companies. So that was a portfolio of work. And I, I began dabbling in um, the social sector. I started an organization called Social Venture Partners, uh, which has now grown all across India. I started an impact fund with uh, two friends from Microsoft, Will Poole um, was one of them. And so that then uh, led to what I'm doing today. In 2018, I said, enough of all the corporate work. Let's take on real um, significant challenges that the world faces. And so I've ended up now starting my um, organization, which is a not-for-profit called GAME, uh, and we're trying to get 10 million young people to start businesses, which and hopefully some of them will start hiring lots of people and create 50 million jobs by uh, 2030. So that's what I'm largely doing today. I also have 
uh, another hat where I'm UNICEF special representative for young people. I spend half my time on that, think, helping young people think about the future of work, acquire the skills and the mindset they need to succeed uh, on a global basis. What are the young people expecting when it comes to the future of work? What, what are you working towards? Well, I think we're um, back where into an environment much like the first industrial revolution where all the struc- established structures and ideas are melting down uh, and are in transition and out of that will emerge perhaps a new stable structure. But essentially when it comes to work, um, um, I think the idea of a job as you and I knew it is becoming um, you know, more and more obsolete. Um, why, why is that? Why is that is largely because on one hand, we're moving from a world of linear change to exponential change, very, mm-hmm. very fast acceleration. What that means is um, the, the skills that you need are changing very, very rapidly. So today, it's, what's hot is data science and machine learning. In five years, it'll be something else. And so you know, come organizations want people who've got the most relevant skills and those tend to be younger people. So the half-life of knowledge and the half-life of people mm-hmm. is coming down. What you're also seeing is companies are going through convulsive changes. Um, so you just see what's happened to any number of companies, including one sprout companies like GE. So um, if you're an employee there, you can end up, uh, you know, be doing very well and suddenly one day the music stops and you don't have a chair to sit on. So you've got th- these kinds of uh, shifts happening. There are also a lot more opportunities. So uh, people who have a little bit of risk appetite and, and an idea are, would rather be out there building their own enterprise than working for someone else. So you've got this crazy mix of, uh, of things. Uh, but what it typically ends up meaning is that we're on one hand we're all living longer on the other hand um you will it's be hard pressed to have a, a stable job and most of us therefore have to figure out how to be a free think like a freelancer think like an entrepreneur um think about self employment and proactively manage multiple transitions in the course of a professional life and so I find that enormously interesting. I've, you know, I've, for the last 10 years, that's how I've lived my life. So I'm not preaching something that I haven't practiced. And while in the beginning, it's a bit uncomfortable and uneasy, particularly if you're, uh, you know, 40 plus uh, uh, over, over a short period of time, you know, uh, I certainly find it exhilarating and many people um, share that. Is it um, scary? Yeah, in the beginning, it's terribly scary because... Um, you don't know, you know, where the money is going to come from. You don't know. Um, uh, you've got a set of ideas of what you might do, but you don't know which of them will actually play out. Uh, the, so there's a lot of uncertainty. But essentially what happens is if you are intentional about uh, uh trying out the ideas you have. Mm -hmm. So if you think of them as experiments, um, you eventually figure out uh, what your uh, path is. And and then the anxiety tends to gradually melt away. But in the beginning, uh, it can be quite unsettling. And the rest of the world is looking at you a little strangely. What's this guy up to? <laughs> and and when you started this journey in the last couple of years, you're doing some 
three or four very different things. Yeah. One about your writing, which I want to go into a little bit of detail sure. on. You wrote this fabulous book about conquering the chaos yeah. in India, you know. Um, and the basic thesis, if I remember right, was that India is a very chaotic country when you look at it from the outside. Yeah, but, or, or the inside. Or the inside, <laughs> yes, of course, we know that. And then there is still a tremendous amount of um, opportunity here. Yeah. So are you bullish still? I mean, would you change the title if you were to publish that book today? Would you still No, about- I, I, one of the things uh, that I've, the uh, publisher, uh, Harvard Business Review, uh, recently came and said, look, would you want to write a new preface and for a new edition? Mm-hmm. And um, I thought about uh, what what has changed since 2013 when the book first came out. Frankly, not much. I think um, we're in, for all the change that has happened politically in terms of the operating environment uh, for a business, precious little has changed. It's still a place filled with opportunity. It's filled with challenges, uncertainty. Um, It's still a ferociously difficult place to do business on the ground. Uh, And so one of my mentors had said India is a country of mouth-watering opportunities and eye-watering challenges. <laughs> this was Dr. Ashok Ganguly in 2013. Man, in 2019, it feels exactly the same way. And the recipe for navigating your way to success is more or less what I laid out in the book. <laughs> and what has changed, though, Abhijit, is that the rest of the world has started looking a lot more like us. So if you see how crazy and turbulent the rest of the world has become, they've started uh, resembling India, which I'm not sure is a great thing, but it is what it is. And if you, uh, in that turbulent environment, you want to really, um, you know, encourage people to start doing their own thing. Yeah. uh, Is that a fair expectation? Because, you know, most people have learned how to uh, find a job and then sort of navigate their way through junior level, mid-level, senior level. It doesn't matter whether it's fair or not. That's how it is. That's how it is. And so as an individual, you have a choice. Hey, should I sit around wishing away reality uh, and, and hope that things go back to the old days? Or you can embrace this and, uh, you know, build a successful professional life and a happy personal life. And so, uh, you know, the book that I intend to write next uh, is really... Do you have a working title? Yeah, the <laughs> the working <laughs> title is What the Heck Do I Do With My Life? Because uh, That I've, sounds I, like uh, uh, something that I should write as well. <laughs> or read. <laughs> no, it turns out that uh, when you look at a person's, uh, look at your own life, there are a number of points where this question comes up. Mm. It comes up uh, in your, you know, late teens, early 20s. It comes up again in your mid-30s. And when you're on the cusp of the, you know, the midlife crisis at 40, it comes up again in your 50s. Obviously, your circumstances are different. The answer is different. But the question is a recurring one. So should that methodology of arriving at the answer change, um, you know, at these different spots that you looked at? I mean, when you're in your teens trying to think about college in in today's day and age, we're talking about somebody who's 19, 20 today. Um, What do I do with my life? How should they look at it? Yeah, well, I think so, because, um, yeah, you're optimizing for different things at different stages of your life. So um, when you're um, finishing education and in your first or second 
job, if you will, or work experience, mm. uh, the way, you know, what would I uh, advise a young person to do? I'd say, well, first of all, uh, you, you need to be a learning machine. Okay, so you need to be as voracious in learning about everything around you and also about yourself, figuring out what you're good at, what you enjoy. Uh, and you do you can only do that by trying many things. You, you, you can't just sit in a chair and answer these questions in abstract. The second thing you must do in early in your career, I suppose, is establish a reputation for, and you do that by being excellent. You know, people underestimate just the importance of, really hard work and doing a great job. And that is um, so unusual that if you do it, you're going to get noticed and then you're going to st start attracting opportunities as your reputation spreads. Um, I would think that you, you really want to be very intentional about your mindset or your attitude. What do I mean by that? It's very easy to slip into a bad attitude. Nobody starts out in life you know, aiming to develop a sour attitude. But before you know it, you and you can see this in people everywhere, there's the victim mindset. You know, why did this happen to me? And you want to blame other people for your circumstances, as opposed to, you know, saying taking responsibility or a problem mindset rather than a solution mindset. All these things set in fairly early. So if you're intentional about it, you can start developing a positive mindset or what is called a, a growth mindset these mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. And that then propels you um, along very nicely in your as you progress in your career. In your mid-career, you're probably thinking about a slightly different set of questions. By the time you turn 40, your mind starts automatically turning to some of the bigger questions. What, what am I supposed to do with my life? Why is that a question popping up by that time? Because you begin to sense your mortality. This is now you turn behind and there's a younger generation that's uh, coming up behind you. Uh, and you begin to realize that you've got maybe 10, 15 years to do whatever it is that you, big that you're going to do. And so you, you know, start asking, why am I here? What should I be doing with my life? And at that stage, what you should do is experiment with many things and then, you know, discover for yourself what it is uh, the answer to the question is. It's also a time when you have a very high risk of becoming obsolete and irrelevant. And you see the tons of middle managers and companies today. I really fear for them. I, you know, I empathize and fear for them because they haven't really stayed relevant. And so the, I think in today's world, they could end up having a hard landing. So what you need to do is reinvent yourself to, to stay current, stay relevant. And I suppose that's what I did when I look back at my career. Every few years, I said, look, this is getting boring. Uh, let's walk away from success and start all over again, a new S-curve. So my life and my career, if you will, is a series of S-curves. And, and that's not a bad way to approach it, uh, um, I think. You know, you talked about this obsolescence of skills, which is happening. I mean, the shelf yeah. life of a skill has dropped dramatically to two two years. Is it years. two years now? Yeah. I would have guessed ago. five years, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> so, so in that case, and then on the other hand, you have the educational institutions are becoming very, very irrelevant from the point of view of creating employability for people. Yeah. At least something that gets them a job and gets them going. How does one 
operate in this environment you know right see one of the interesting things to, is uh, to, to look at the data so it turns out in india a, a person with a higher education degree like an engineering degree mm-hmm. is five times as likely to be unemployed as a person with no education somebody who just drops out at class 8 or something incredible it is a very staggering number and what it tells you is two things the quality of jobs out there so pathetic for the most part that if you have a degree, higher degree you you tend to not want to do that kind of work like you know gig work a uh, swiggy delivery or whatever on the other hand the quality of the degrees that we are handing out is also so pathetic in large part that you are unemployable even though you have a degree <laughs> so mm-hmm. we have you know so we have this big 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 issue so what do you do you know um i think again you you have to figure out how to make yourself valuable and for that you know uh you start being honest with yourself around wh- where your real skills and aptitude lie and where your interests lie and trying to swim in that direction and if i think if you do that um it's okay so it was obviously much easier when i started out but how did I, you make them those choices well one of the things i decided uh, during iit is hey man i'm not i'm never going to make a great engineer okay so find that i'm studying engineering i'm glad i have this degree because it's pretty valuable but we better figure out where your real skills uh, lie turns out that my real skill was in managing and leading and i figured that out in a gritty shop floor of a, a midwestern factory which is a nice place to you know demonstrate and develop leadership skills so that's the path that i took and for the next 30 years essentially i you know i learned to manage more and more complicated things and i loved it but it was i had to be very honest with myself and say look you're never going to make a f- fantastic engineer you may make a competent engineer but that's in any case there's no joy in this you have to go where the joy is uh and where the aptitude lies there's this japanese concept which is now being thrown around a lot called ikigai, ikigai. and those three intersecting circles yeah i i think that's right and so sort of being intentional about that honest about yourself is good and you know when people receive feedback um especially about things that they are not good at it's it's very hard to handle um and how did you handle it because you know one of the challenges as a ceo of a company is that uh, there are less number of people who are giving you honest feedback how do you ensure that you those are two different questions one one is first how do you take feedback and mm-hmm. the second is how do you make sure you're getting you're honest getting feedback. The right feedback so um the take the taking feedback actually turns out to be this um, psychological trait called the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset right i love carol dweck's book i keep going back to it because it has layers of meaning but uh, if you have a fixed mindset and then you you know you tend to be pretty insecure and then uh, any feedback feels like an intense personal attack mm. and you know such people don't welcome it um and so what you have to do is cultivate and it's definitely a learned thing um this a more open mindset where you say feedback is how you learn so in a world where things are changing so rapidly and you have to constantly learn and reinvent yourself if you're not getting feedback what the heck so you should train yourself to actually welcome it 
uh, because it's never personal. It's, it's just data. And you can decide what to do with the data. You're absolutely right. As you grow in an organization, um, it's hard to get honest feedback about what's really going on in the organization. And more importantly, honest feedback about the way in which you're contributing to um, a not great situation. So what I, you know, you've got to do and what I've tried to do is have multiple pathways. So how do you build a team which has at least a few people who will speak truth to power? How, how do you make sure that, uh, you know, you have a partner, a spouse, whatever, who will keep you keep grounded you and honest? Friends will tell you the same thing. Um, usually younger people, I find, are more willing to speak up and tell you the way things are. So even as you grow in seniority, grow in age, staying connected with uh, younger people is probably a useful thing. So frontline employees, uh, if you give them half a chance, <laughs> will tell you exactly the way things are. What what kind of things have been have you been trying to learn in the last uh, six or twelve months? You know, what are some things uh, you know you are doing to prepare yourself for these three choices: writing, uh, the no, so UNICEF for... role, as well as the board roles. So one of the things, you know, I'm, I love this idea of uh, what's called Zen mind, beginner's mind. In Zen, there's this idea that you should always have be childlike because a ch- your child is very open, curious. It's just, uh, and uh, not to lose that, to nurture that childlike mind. And so I'm still intensely curious about everything. I spend lots of time reading, uh, listening. But I emphasize that this learning isn't just narrow in the for, in the nature of a skill or a competency. I think what we're talking about is a much broader bundle uh, of of things. And that can only come if you repeatedly put yourself outside your comfort zone uh, by taking on fresh challenges. So as I said, last year in August, I walked away from the things I'd done for the previous essentially 30 years in business. And took on a UN role uh, and started this uh, social organization, uh, social startup called GAME. And so it forces you to learn completely new things, work with completely new people and organizations, think hard about problems you've never thought about. And so that's wonderful because new neural connections are forming, new personal networks are forming, et cetera, et cetera. So that's pretty good. I've tried this, uh, what I... I've tried practicing what I preach, which is take online courses and, uh, you know, learn new knowledge. Um, So I've signed up for a couple of courses on Coursera, but I must admit I haven't finished them. So (laughs) it made me feel good that I at least, you know, started, but uh, I'm, I'm feeling guilty. Then I'm also, and also it's about broader things. So for instance, right now I've bought myself an accordion. And I found myself an accordion teacher in Bangalore. And so I said, look, I was a very good musician when I was young. I gave up all that in order to study hard. Uh, And it would be wonderful if I could uh, revive that. So here I am again. So I think it's very, very important to continuously hit the reset button and start afresh. Um, There's something exhilarating about that. And what I hear you say is that, you know, at any given point of time, 
um, take one area where you are a complete beginner. You yeah. know, in this case, you're yeah. learning music as a complete beginner, yeah. a new instrument, and then you want to build on that. That keeps your mind correct, active and alive. Correct. Um, I, a friend of mine to, is uh, has her commencement today at age 50-something. She's just completed a PhD. Wow. You know, I love that. I think that's, and I've, it's inspired me to think about whether I should be doing it now at age 56. <laughs> Let me take a minute here to mention my collaborators, People Strong. Technology today doesn't make sense unless it is A, open, and B, it's connected to the lives of its users. The days of traditional ERPs are long gone. Users think if I can manage my finances, my travel, my communication, everything else through just Google why do I need to log into five different apps at work just to know how many days of leave do I have? When will I get my reimbursements? How much did I get paid? That is so not right. PeopleStrong is the only company in Asia which has been able to create a platform using which enterprises can not only provide a unified view to all the users, but also create apps on the fly if need be. They have been working with the leading enterprises of Asia to deliver amazing benefits in terms of people, productivity, and experience. Uh, you know, you said that there are so many people becoming, you know, in the mid-career stage, becoming irrelevant, yeah. landing hard on their, uh, you know, they're out of jobs. A lot of people kind of believe that at the mid-career, you suddenly experience a lot of politics in organizations. Uh, and therefore, until, you, you know, the ones who lose out are the ones who can't navigate politics. Is that true? And if so, how does one manage that? Look, um, organizations are inherently political, right? Because and what um, do we? How would you define the word political? Political uh, has this negative connotation, but I think it's actually simply a factual description of multiple people who have multiple agendas, interests, value systems, uh, mm -hmm. and what you're trying to do is, you know, accomplish something in the uh, midst of. All, all, all their agendas competing and priorities, demands. competing demands and so forth. And so that if you're going to actually be a leader and get others to follow you and get things done, this is a skill you have to develop. And it's, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's not a pejorative term. Now, if it's all about self-interest, then it becomes pejorative, saying, look, it's not about accomplishing things. It's about me accumulating more power and rising in the hierarchy. And if that becomes the dominant thing, mm -hmm. uh, then I guess uh, it's it's problematic. But otherwise, it isn't. And so, yeah, as you grow in the organization and reach middle management, these things become more significant because you're responsible for teams. You're negotiating more things with other people in order to advance uh, whatever it is you're trying to get done. Uh, and so you have to develop a set of skills. Um, and if you don't develop it, you're going to hit a ceiling, okay? Uh, but more than politics in an organization, there's just a lot of uncertainties and a lot of things that can happen. Mm -hmm. You can have a reorg. Man, it doesn't matter what happened, what you did. <laughs> when a reorg happens, the whole deck gets thrown up and the cards settle in a different configuration and you may or may not land in a good place. Something can happen to your company. Your company can get acquired. It can go bust. Um, so, so many things can just happen. Often what happens is you, you're trucking along, you get a new boss and that boss likes other people. And so, you know, you, you get left behind. 
this is going to happen with much greater frequency, okay? And there's no point feeling bad about it. Just accept that there is no such thing as a long-term job and a career in a single organization. Uh, life is essentially a set of projects or gigs, and that's how you should think about it. And when one gig ends, don't feel bad about it. Think about what's next. I think if you can frame it that way and have the skills and the um, reputation capital, um, things will be fine. So um, is it reasonable to say that, you know, in the in the early uh, days, there was like a job, then you started looking at entrepreneurship, and now we are looking at gigs. So, you know, the project, the skills, the timeline, the number of employers, the buyers, the, all of that. Yeah. Is the, the example or the analogy I give is my father's generation, you entered a tunnel and emerged 35 years later into retirement. Mm-hmm. In my generation, probably yours, we have to navigate about three tunnels mm-hmm. on average, sometimes four. Mm-hmm. Um, now you're actually having to navigate a maze. Okay. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it's it's the game has changed profoundly. So don't think in terms of, don't define yourself in terms of jobs and a predictable career and so forth. Think more in terms of experiences, projects, um, uh, and sometimes a portfolio of projects like um, what I have going on right now. And I think that's a much more healthy, empowering way. Of course, it takes a certain mindset and skill set that you'll have to develop to be able to thrive in this type of a uh, construct. Eh, but many more people are getting there. So you are essentially trying to live the life that uh, somebody entering their career should actually do because you are doing three different, completely different things. That's right. And learning a fourth different thing and, you know, to have a portfolio of things that you're working on. Correct. And who knows how this portfolio is going to evolve. When I look back at the last nine years, uh, it's been very, very dynamic, right? What I, The portfolio of things I started out with in 2011 changed considerably over this period and it's going to change again. It's just, And you should feel excited about that rather than overwhelmed by it. And you are trying to get a lot of people to start their ventures, you know, yeah. startups and all of that. Tell me a little about that. No, so the point is we're all mourning the lack of jobs. What we need to do is stop mourning and realize this is reality. And it's nobody's fault. It's not this government's fault or, uh, you know, that person's fault. This is the changing nature of 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 the world. So formal sector jobs are going to be fewer and fewer just because automation and all that is going to drive more and more productivity. Mm-hmm. And so... The answer is actually to is more entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship does two things. First of all, instead of looking for a job, you start your own thing. And if you succeed, that's good. And in the process, you, you create, create jobs for others. Sure, right? so, sure. And when I talk entrepreneurship, I'm not talking about the tech-enabled startups that we're obsessed with in Bangalore or Gurgaon or the Valley. I'm talking about mundane, ordinary businesses of every sort. So if you're a young woman and you're studying uh, uh, to be a beautician, why don't you start your own salon instead of working somewhere or very soon after working somewhere and getting some experience? Why don't you start your own? Um, A motorcycle repair shop, a food business, uh, start a creche. One of the uh, sort of biggest supply-demand gaps in cities is safe, high-quality creches for children. So if you're a woman uh, and you want to be an entrepreneur and you want to do that out of your own home, starting a nice creche is a pretty good 
or option. So what we are focused on is to get millions of people thinking about the opportunities that lie around them and help them take the steps to start these businesses. It turns out that uh, there are lots of challenges. First of all, it's not aspirational. Other than three of three cities or four cities, the metros, uh, young people would rather have a job and that do a government job because it's safe. Um, so we have to change how, you know, what is aspirational, what people see as success through role models. Uh, we've got the, a very interesting experiment going on in Delhi schools right now where seven and a half lakh kids from standard nine to 12, their first period is entrepreneurship. And they learn that by doing. So we're going to follow this cohort and see how how what they do over time. We're now taking this to Punjab and some other states. So that's a big intervention to try and get gradually create, um, make this pervasive across all schools. Then, of course, to find incubation models. So when a young person wants to start a business, forget young, any person wants to start a business, uh, they don't know how to go about it. Where How do you create online and offline communities where you can get find like-minded people who are on the same journey, get help? How do you solve for access to markets using tech technology and, you know, various types of platforms, access to finance. So there's a lot of problems we have to solve for in the next four or five years before we can uh, really be confident of success. But it's very exciting. And uh, when, you know, when such an organization grows, you know, typically the word that we use is dreamers and unicorns, you know. Yeah, so dreamers, dreamers are, are still, these, at, the yeah, idea still stage. at the idea stage. Maybe a handful of friends have gotten together, they've started something. And from there, you kind of suddenly discover that magical product market fit yeah. and uh, you've started hockey growing. Stick. Hockey stick growth to become a unicorn. Yeah. Um, how does the role of the leader change? What should the leader be focusing on as uh, when you're a dreamer? And when you're in a unicorn, when you're, you're talking about a... the founder, CEO, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's a good question. So there's a set of things that as a CEO or founder of an organization, you have to do continuously over time. You know, back in the 70s, Andy Pearson, who was then the CEO of Pepsi, wrote a beautiful article in HBR talking about the seven tasks of the CEO. I'll never forget this. So, and that hasn't changed that much. No, and it what were some of those things? So it has to do with only the CEO can help define the purpose of an organization. Why do we exist? How, what does success look like? What's the strategy, et cetera? That's one thing. Resource allocation. How much should we put behind this versus that? And the trade-offs inherent in that. That's another one. Thinking about how, uh, how do you build a good top team and actually the broad, more broadly the talent that's the CEO's job. Thinking about um, how the organization is perceived externally, the reputation of... The, there, so there's turns out that there's a fairly standard seven things a leader has to do. But then it it is very also stage dependent, as you said. In the dreamer stage, and frankly, the organization I'm building is still in that stage, so I know what it's like. What do you do? You have, you're basically the chief salesman for the company or salesperson for the company because you're selling your vision, your dream, your aspiration. You're selling it to investors. You're selling it to customers. You're selling it to the first people who you who you want as employees and uh, to build the organization. So you're very much in that mode and nobody else can do that. Okay, it's intensely about you and your dream. The second thing you're doing, as you already said, is doing lots of experiments to find product market fit. 
uh, and pivoting madly till you get there. And the third thing that you're really, really trying to do is worry about cash. Because at that stage, it's a race against time. What's your burn burn rate versus your learn rate? And you want to learn faster than you're burning cash because most people, frankly, go bust just because they run out of fuel. So that's how, that's what you're doing as the leader in that stage. Then when you're in that high growth stage, it's very different, right? And you remember Microsoft and that, those high growth yes, years. Absolutely. What you're trying to do is, um, you know, really make sure that the, the, you're putting in place processes so that the organization doesn't uh, hit a wall and come crashing down. You're worrying a lot about talent because the biggest risk is that the job will, will outgrow the person. And it's true at every level in the organization. So how do you hire people who are scalable, who are learning, um, et cetera? Do you have a top team that's capable of sustaining the growth? Big, big, big challenges. The third thing you're doing is actually making sure that you're not the biggest obstacle to the success of the organization. One of the sort of learnings I've had is all of us, at some stage, we become the biggest barrier to the success of the organization. And you need to make sure that that's not happening. And so you have to learn to be self-aware and manage your own weaknesses, okay? And a lot of that is building a team around you that is strong at what you're not, Okay, so that's what you're doing. And then, of course, you really do become an industry leader and the game changes yet again. Now you have to start worrying not just about your own company. You have to worry about the health of the industry. Okay, you have to grow the industry. You have to make sure that it is healthy. And then you have to make sure that your ecosystem of you and your partners uh, is stronger than your competitor's ecosystem. And so the game again changes. And so... Yeah, so it's, uh, what it means is you have to constantly reinvent yourself. Otherwise, at some point, you become the reason why the organization stalls. What have been some of the moments in your career that have shaped you? Is there an incident uh, that you think had a incident d- disproportionate <laughs> impact on what you are like today? Well, there are many incidents over 35 years, right? So um, I think I owe... a. You know, there's this phrase that says, well begun is half done. So I just, when I look back, I said, man, was I lucky to start out in a good company and work for a good boss? Because over 35 years, I realized good boss is actually the exception, not the norm. And my first manager was a fantastic person. Not only was a manager, he was a mentor. He um, gave me opportunities uh, ahead of when I was ready for it and a lot of good things happened just because of that great start. And so over the years, I've said, look, one of the most important things to do is bet on people. You know, when you spot some talent, this idea of ready now, are they ready for this is complete nonsense. What you have to do is find a way to give them, throw them into the deep end of the pool and and see what they can do with it. So, I was so I I learned a lot about talent management from two or three people over the years who just were exceptional mentors to me. What else? Yeah, I I learned a lot about um, fairness from a big disagreement with uh, Mr. Ratan Tata, 
we had a joint venture agreement which uh, between Cummins and Tata Motors in those days, 90s, which was egregiously one-sided. So we shared the profits and 100% of the losses are theirs. <laughs> 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 and that was a, uh, became a really uh, sort of tough issue. So having to work through that, renegotiate it, and was a less powerful, powerful lesson. Um, I think uh, spending time around Bill Gates and watching his evolution from being the CEO of Microsoft to being the philanthropist and sort of person he is today has been hugely inspirational in many ways. I think I've unconsciously mimicked a similar um, journey and so, um, so I have, again, lucky to have had multiple role models, uh, not just mentors, but role models. So working not only with Bill, but working closely with Narayan Murthy, who was another phenomenal entrepreneur and teacher. So, yeah, I, I just when I look back, I said, man, 99% of this was luck um, and 1% was hard work. <laughs> uh, last question, Ravi. I would really love to know, um, do dreams change as you go through life? Of and, course. Uh, dreams better change. I mean, it'd be terrible if to have a one dream your whole life. and be. Does that make you single, you know, focused on some one thing that I want to do in my life? And is that better than having dreams which evolve, change? No, I think it, dreams necessarily evolve as you evolve as a human being. Sure. So when I was young, I wanted to be a scientist. That's all I wanted to be. I was so passionate. But my mom and others around me said, look, uh, in the 70s, it's, you know, doing a, studying science is not so hard. So next best thing is engineering. So whatever. Then I wanted to get out of India. That was my dream. So I said, look, we're going to do really study and do whatever it takes to get to the U.S. That was the dream. Then, of course, you say, well, I want to get a great job. And then you want to climb to the top of that job. <laughs> so it's just natural. So uh, today what I want to do is two things. I feel everything that I've learned, everything I've done, is merely preparation for what I'm to do next. So what, what is it that I'm supposed to do next? Figuring that out, figuring out the highest value use of me is what I'm focused on. So who knows how long this phase will last. But um, the important thing here is not that whether dreams change or don't change. The important thing is to pursue your dream. Too many people park their dreams. They don't pursue it. And they say, well, let's do this. It's existential. And then we'll come back to that. Um, and I think that's a mistake because life is uncertain. And so you shouldn't postpone it. You should live your dream. Ravi, thank you very much. It's been absolutely amazing having this conversation with you. Thank you for being on Dreamers and Unicorns. What a joy. And I would welcome hearing back on from your readers or listeners what they thought of this. And hopefully some of them will read the book when it's written. Thank you again. Cheers. Hey listeners, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Dreamers and Unicorns by People Strong, Season 1 of the New Code of Work series. If you like the show or have any feedback for us, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I am Abhijit Bhaduri and you can find me at Abhijit Bhaduri on LinkedIn and Twitter. So until next time, 
Thank you for listening and goodbye. This show is brought to you by PeopleStrong, Asia's leading work and HR tech company. For more information, visit their website at newcodeofwork.com. Dreamers and Unicorns is a Made in India production. Editorial producers, May Thomas and Sean Phantom. Producer, Sharanya Subramanian. Assistant producer, Janam Devan. Sound designed and edited by Karthik Kulkarni.